Hey, it's Trey with New City Church. Thank you so much for taking the time to check out one of our messages. If you'd like to plan a visit sometime, you can do that at newcitynash.com slash visit. We'd love to connect with you and hope and pray that this message blesses you. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11, starting in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. You can pray with me. Lord, thank you so much today for letting us gather here together and worship you, Lord, for reminding us that all these things that we see you do in scripture, Lord, that you promise that you will do them again, Lord. And Lord, thank you that you are here with us. You're continuing to be here with us, Lord. And I pray that we would um, understand what you have for us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Jesus is the resurrection in life. If there is something that our faith stands upon, it is the resurrection of Jesus. I think it was the Apostle Paul who said, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain, and my preaching is useless. Uh, I think he may have said our preaching, but certainly my preaching also would be useless uh, if Christ has not been been raised. Uh, If you've been around church at all, these are probably phrases that you've heard before, Jesus being the resurrection and the life. And Uh, This week, we're continuing our series talking about who Jesus is. And our central premise throughout this series is if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. And so we've looked at a variety of different things that Jesus has said about himself. And in this story we just read, Jesus describes himself as the resurrection and the life. And this story uh, has a lot of really beautiful things in it, and it takes place in a larger piece of scripture. So in the beginning of John chapter 11, we see that one of Jesus' friends, Lazarus, is sick. And his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, send for Jesus. And in verse 3, it says this. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from us. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get to that point in the story, I'm already feeling a little bit tense uh, because this is one of Jesus' dear friends, Lazarus, who is sick, and his sisters, who Jesus also deeply cares for, send for Jesus, and Jesus is still hanging out where he is for two whole days. And so at this point, I'm feeling, I'm honest, that little tension within myself where it's like, all right, God, I've also prayed some things like this, and it seems like you are taking a minute uh, to get over there. 
So we continue on in the story, and if you read later, this story functions in a way of leading Jesus up into his crucifixion. Right after this, uh, people plot to kill Jesus. It really kind of sets it uh, in motion, even right after this in verse uh, 8. The, the disciples say, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? And so there is this idea even here that when Jesus is going to visit Lazarus, he is walking into his death. He's walking into it. And his disciples even know they may also die. They may also be stoned by going into this. So continuing on, we get into verse 14 and 15. So Remember, Jesus promised Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, but then in verse 14, Jesus told them, the disciples, plainly, Lazarus is dead. Okay, (laughs) you said Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, but then here, Lazarus is dead, and then Jesus says, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. And then we go on to see Jesus' interactions with Martha and Mary. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if, you, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. I love those two verses because those are often my prayers or have been my prayers. God, if you had been here. If you'd just been here, I wouldn't feel so depressed. God, if you'd been here, my loved one wouldn't have passed away. God, if you'd been here, (laughs) things wouldn't be the way that they are. If you just showed up, and and there's a lot within this, and I mean, I don't want to read too much into what it is, but there's a lot that could be in this. Were they hurt that Jesus didn't show up? Maybe. I might have been if it was me, but I don't know if they were. Were they sad? Probably their brother had died, right? That's probably assumed. But the statement is also written with faith. There's a if-then statement. If you had been here, then. And if I'm honest, one of the hardest things about faith is when you pray something in faith, believing God can do something, and then he doesn't show up when or how you think he should, or even in accordance with how you've seen him show up before. And you pray and you ask, God, if you'd only been here, this would not have happened. Or this circumstance would change. God, if you'd only been here, the faith in there sometimes even makes that even more painful because you believe that he could do something. And even there, right after, but even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And then Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said. He will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And so then we go on and we see Jesus' interaction with the other sister, Mary. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet, which is often a posture of worship and desperation even, and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same Words. And I'm sure the conversation was probably longer than just what we see here. But maybe an invitation for us is that sometimes when we come together in worship, it's like, all right, I need to just praise God for the things that he has done. But maybe your posture of worship today is just to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, God, if you'd only been here. God, if you'd only been here, then this thing that I've been praying about and asking for and like seems to be in accordance with how you've wired me would happen. Maybe your act of worship today is even just to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, God, if you'd only been here. That statement is written with honesty and faith. And we keep on going in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? 
He asked them, they told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing by said, see how much he loved him. But some were saying, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. There's so much in here. Uh, We're going to come back to this phrase, then Jesus wept. If you've grown up at all around Christian-ish circles, you've probably heard people say that, uh, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Uh, I know when I was in middle school that that was kind of the joke. Uh, I know a Bible verse, Jesus wept. And for some reason, Jesus crying was funny because it was a short verse, but actually thinking about it, weeping, I mean, maybe you laugh because it makes you uncomfortable, but like, that statement is written with so much depth. And right after this, we see that um, they roll the stone aside that was blocking the entrance to the tomb. And he had, Lazarus had been there so long that he'd been there for four days and his sister Martha said, the smell will be terrible. I think it was the King James Version that said something like, he stinketh or something along those lines. Makes it really abundantly clear. I'm not gonna dive into the, uh, all the particulars and culturally to explain it, but the, the idea is even with the time frame that's referenced, that there was no question whether or not he was dead. He was not in a coma, he was not just asleep, he was legally, certifiably, without a shadow of a doubt, dead. So much so that his body now had an odor. He stinketh. And Jesus, if you know the story, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And for some reason, this really upsets some people (laughs) and leads to Jesus being crucified. And here's one thing I want to get at. Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated death. And and what I kind of want to dive into today is this concept that has some, uh, it's, what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive for about two, three minutes. And then I want to offer some implications for you because I think they will be helpful. Have you guys heard the phrase, the already and not yet kingdom of God before? Uh, Some of you may be familiar with that. Uh, I heard that maybe after college. And to be honest, even when I was working in a church, maybe you don't want to hear, but uh, I didn't totally know what in the world that meant. Uh, the already and not yet kingdom of God. It probably wasn't until seminary that I started to have a better idea of what it meant. And so all I'd say, if it's unfamiliar terminology to you, it's not necessarily, the language is not scriptural, uh, but it's, it's a helpful kind of posture when understanding what God has done. Uh, the idea is that there's a sense in which the resurrection life in the kingdom of God, we have access to it already. And there's also a sense in which we don't have full access to it yet right? So in this story, even, we see where Jesus weeps. We also see Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And if you're like me, you might also think, well, Lazarus raised from the dead, but he's, he dies again later. <laughs> That's not written in here, but he dies again later, right? Revelation 1.18 says, talking from Jesus, Jesus says, I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Jesus defeated death. And then this kind of not yet picture of what we long for, where we get our name, even New City Church, uh, from Revelation chapter 21, verses one through five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for the husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
which note there, that implies that people have been crying. Uh, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Once again, implying very clearly that all these things are a part of the present reality. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. So what we can long for is that all those who trust Jesus will live forever with God and that one day there will be no more pain, no more hurt, no more sorrow, no more death, no more cancer. I won't struggle with depression or anxiety anymore. All that stuff will be gone. And praise God. But you and I know, I don't really feel that all the way just yet. So what's about now? Romans 8 22 to 23 says it like this, for we know that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Now, this, uh, I feel weird even saying this because I'm a, I'm a guy who's never going to give birth to a child, but it's pretty common knowledge that childbirth is an incredibly painful process. Is that a fair thing to say? I've not yet met anyone who has had a child that did not say it was painful. It's expected that it will be painful. The metaphor here that is being used to describe even what we presently are experiencing in regard to life with Jesus is childbirth, pain. It's expected. And, and I say this to say, when we talk about the already and not yet kingdom of God, Jesus promising something in the future does not negate what is happening in the present. Jesus promising something in the future does not negate what is happening in the present. If I'm to put it in a different way, future hope does not negate present suffering. Now, uh, this is a big problem in the West and also amongst Christian people that we like to bypass pain and suffering as much as we can. And I've got a lot of theological and philosophical reasons why I think that's the case. And I think it's incredibly wrong and harmful and dangerous and a whole lot of other things. But it manifests itself uh, often when people... Take this future hope and say that you can have all of it right now. People use language that skirt around people's pain. Uh, for example, people will say, well, or yourself will say, well, at least it's not. Or everything happens for a reason. Or, you know, that's really hard, but you know what? God's got a plan. Which, I mean, I don't disagree with that. But even later on in this passage, in Romans 8, it says there's this passage that you may have heard, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. The future hope does not negate the fact that there is present pain. It's expected. Like childbirth, I would be incredibly shocked if someone said it wasn't that bad or it was particularly easy. It's expected that there is immense pain. At the same time, present suffering does not negate the future hope. Future, uh, present suffering can be informed, thank you, can be informed by uh, the future hope and even transformed by it, but it does not 
negated by it. So what do we see in this story? Uh, two words that I think are incredibly powerful. Jesus wept. And ironically, I'm very thankful that middle schoolers taught me that verse because it's actually been incredibly impactful for me in my life, in my ministry. Jesus wept. Simply put, uh, if Jesus wept and he is God, sometimes the perfect response to a given situation is to cry. You were created with feelings. You are made in the image of God. Some of y'all may think, I don't have that many feelings. I would say therapy might be really helpful for you. You do have feelings. They manifest themselves in a lot of different ways. You were created with feelings. God made you that way on purpose. That's not to say that we're governed by our feelings. That can be another tendency to go towards. But our feelings definitely inform and are part of the way that we respond to things. They actually can lead us to really helpful things. For more on this, quick plug. Our Faith and Mental Health podcast kind of dives deeper into all of this stuff. First episode actually dives deeper into all the emotions that we see in this particular story. You were created with feelings. And if I can go further, you don't have to have it all together, whatever in the world that means. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation and you're like, man, I can't hold it all together. Which, once again, what in the world does that even mean? Uh, usually it just means that you're not crying. At least maybe that's just for me because I'm more prone to cry than other emotions. You don't have to hold it all together because in this story, the one who holds the world together doesn't seem to have it all together. But he's holding it all together. Sometimes the perfect response to a situation is to cry. But maybe you, like me, have heard messages like, well, big boys don't cry or don't cry over spilt milk. Well, last time I checked, my God is a lot bigger than whatever big boy we're referring to. And that, <laughs> my big God cried in this story. He wept. So don't you tell me big boys don't cry because my God knew you. Before you were born, he knit you together in your mother's womb. So don't you tell me big boys don't cry. He knew you before you could even put your own britches on. <laughs> Sometimes the perfect response to a situation is to cry. So in the already... While we feel pain, Jesus meets us in the midst of it. And there's a lot to be said around his emotions and the anger and the crying. and A lot we could dive into with anger and listening and empathy and all this other stuff and not being able to fully know exactly what all these things that he were feeling, was feeling. But that's one sense in which we can see the already. Another sense is that we actually can take part in the resurrection life of Jesus now. And to show you this, I, I want to take it in maybe a little different way than what you've heard before which is uh, oftentimes when we talk about resurrection in the West, we talk about the individual notion of when I die, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I get to spend eternity with God, which is true. And I certainly believe that. Jesus even says it um, here in John chapter 11. But there is another sense in which God's resurrection life is presently breaking into the world and God is working to redeem all things to himself, to make all things new. And so what I want to do is I want to look at how Jesus' resurrection life over the past 2,000 years has broken into society and brought life into a lot of pockets that you may be unaware of. Actually places that have massively benefited and impacted your life that have been built upon a bedrock of Jesus' life and teachings. To quote, or to reference one of my friends who planted a church in Georgia, he said that in his community, Jesus has a reputation problem. 
that people associate him with a lot of other things. I'm not going to say the exact words that he used, but there weren't very nice words that people thought of Jesus. And I would say that Christianity also has a reputation problem, and in some ways, uh, rightly so, because Christians have been associated with a lot of awful things and have perpetuated a lot of terrible things in the name of faith. Things like the Crusades, slavery, Christian nationalism, bigotry, racism, sexism, I can go on and on and on uh, with the list of things. But at the same time, I want to make a case that Jesus is the most influential person in all of human history. And the question is, how has Jesus' resurrection life changed the world? To quote uh, a pastor, and he's on the board of Fuller Theological Seminary, John Ortberg, he said, Jesus is history's most familiar figure. And if I could, I want to recommend a book to you. It's a book called Who Is This Man by John Ortberg. I'm about 40 or 50 pages shy of finishing this book, uh, which normally I don't, wouldn't want to recommend a book that I haven't totally finished, but the first 100 pages are worth the cost of admission. Uh, the first chapter alone, I highlighted a ton of. So for the rest of my sermon, or a lot of it, it's either going to be direct quote or paraphrasing. I told someone before I preached this, I was like, I'm about to quote and reference somebody outside of Jesus more than I ever have, because this stuff was, I mean, mind-boggling. This is from a Yale, his and also I'm going to be uh, listing some historians and other people uh, from a variety of different backgrounds. If I mispronounce a name, I'm sorry, I read it, don't know exactly how it's how it said. This is the first one. Yale historian, Yaroslav Pelikan, hopefully I got that right, said this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of the history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Now, the irony of, I mean, there's so much irony in the whole Jesus story, right? If you read in like Luke chapter 2 and other places where it describes Jesus' birth, it contrasts King Herod with this baby who was born of a virgin mother and put in a feeding trough. We're going to talk in a minute about children and how that's actually really profound that the Savior of the world is even depicted as a child. But he was crucified on a cross. Do you know whose name is remembered now? Not the ones who executed him, unless you're talking about like Little Caesar's Pizza or something along those lines, or a dog name, or maybe a restaurant. The name that is remembered is Jesus of Nazareth. And ironically, Jesus has more followers, had more followers 100 years after his death than he did during his life. He had more followers 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years later. H.G. Wells in the book, The Greatest Men in History, said that a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. So I want to dive into a couple different ways that Jesus has radically altered the way that we collectively, and I don't even mean just Christians, we collectively view the world and the way that we operate. So the first one would be that of children. In the ancient world, there certainly were great parents and loving parents in the same way that you know now there are great and loving parents and not so great parents. But in the ancient world, children uh, were not deemed as being of, of much value, uh, especially as in comparison to today. Children usually weren't or often weren't named until the eighth day. And 
There was a number of reasons for this, but until then, the child could be killed or even left out via a practice that became known as exposure, where they would leave a child often on a dump or dung hill to die. That's not to mention uh, disabled children or uh, women as opposed, uh, female children as opposed to male children. Jews historically opposed this practice because of their faith. And here comes this man, Jesus, who is depicted, we don't know a lot about his childhood, but we know about his birth, who's depicted as being a child of a virgin mother put in a feeding trough. Here comes this man who says, how do you be great? He talks about letting the little, little children come to me. To have a faith like that of a child, not only that the children are of value, but actually they are exemplifying characteristics that are meant for the rest of us to learn from. He doesn't say to the child, learn to be like this grown-up. He says to the grown-up, learn to be like this child. Over time, this practice of exposure got shifted. Because Jesus' followers took Jesus' commands really seriously. People began to leave babies outside a monastic community or church instead of a dunghill. The beginnings of what would be known as orphanages began to rise, usually associated with monasteries or cathedrals. In addition to that, uh, Jesus' followers really took to heart Jesus' teaching concerning the care for the least of these and the care of the sick. Sociologist Rodney Stark argued that one of the primary reasons for the spread of Jesus' movement was the way his followers responded to sick people. How many of you in this room have ever been to a hospital or a physician's care office at some point in your life? I know we've got some people that even work in those places. You can trace that back to the person of Jesus. Uh, there were doctors, certainly before, but this came from the idea of taking care of the least of these this is a direct quote from John Ortberg. There was a church father named Basil who had an idea. What if we build a place to love and care for lepers? If you're familiar with uh, leprosy, it's a terrible disease, but also in addition to that, it was uh, led to a lot of people being outcast from society and being deemed less than, not to be associated with. He said, they don't have money. They don't even have to pay for it. We'll raise the money. And one of the most famous sermons in that century was by his brother, Gregory of Nyssa, who was also a church father, and it was to raise money for this place to take care of leprosy. This is what Gregory said. Lepers have been made in the image of God in the same way you and I have, and perhaps preserve that image better than we. Let us take care of Christ while there is still time. Drawing on this imagery where Christ not only says take care of the least of these in like a patronistic or patronizing sort of way, but he says take care of the least of these because when you do that, you're taking care of me. He identifies with the sick, with the vulnerable. And so Gregory of Nyssa goes on talking about taking care of the lepers. Let us take care of Christ while there is still time. Let us minister to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us gather Christ in. Let us show Christ honor. That was the beginning of what would become known as hospitals. The Council of Nicaea, which is the same council that affirmed the Nicene Creed, which is uh, one of the two creeds that we have on our uh, website, is like our statement of belief. They decreed that wherever a cathedral existed, there must be a hospice, a place of caring for the sick and poor. Think in our community, St. Thomas, which used to be Baptist. Think of Red Cross. You think of a whole lot of other things. Now, obviously, you may be thinking here, when I'm talking about caring for the least of these, I'm going to quote John Orberg again here. He said, few people show less compassion than those who try to argue that Christians have a corner on compassion. I'd say that's pretty accurate. 
But philosopher Mark Nelson put it like this. If you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely and for practical welfare of the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, repay this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. So if you've taken part in literally any of those things, which my guess is you've taken part in a number of those things, you are standing in fruit of the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And this comes back to this idea of every person being made in the image of God, which led followers of Jesus towards this radical concept known as equal treatment of people. To quote uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that there are no gradations of the image of God that regardless of whether you are rich or poor, male or female, whatever your socioeconomic status is, everyone bears the mark of the image of God. Historian Thomas Cahill references Galatians 3.28, which talks about there no longer being male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, which is not a negation of how those roles impact our lives, but it's saying at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. He said this was the first statement of egalitarianism in human literature. Even our own Declaration of Independence said that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Now, our, we can obviously say that this has not been exemplified in a number of different ways, but this stems from Jesus because this was not so self-evident to the ancient world. Aristotle, y'all heard of Aristotle before? Very influential, but he wrote that inequality concerning things like masters and slaves was the natural order of things. And yet here comes Jesus who says every person matters, who taught the rich and the poor, the healthy and the sick, masters and slaves, he taught everyone. And even if people had different roles outside the context of the church, in the church, they were of equal value. And in fact, there's plenty of scriptures and teachings to say that actually you give of more value to those that might have less value outside the church. Every person matters. Jesus' teaching inspired a person named William Wilberforce who converted to Christianity. Then he went to John Newton for career advice, and Newton told him to devote his entire life to the abolition of slavery. In addition to this, uh, women. Uh, Jesus radically changed the way that people treat women. Uh, in ancient Athens, laws about women were largely laws about property. Uh, laws like we would have about a car or a house or something along those lines. But Jesus taught and the scriptures taught that what earthly fathers gave to their firstborn son, God offers to give to all who trust in him, a radical concept. And also that the highest calling of a woman is not children, which is what they were associated with in the ancient world, but rather to be one who loves God with all that they are, loves their neighbor as themselves. The same is that of a man. Furthermore, roughly half of the households Paul mentions that form the infrastructure of the early church are headed by women. Women began to find value in a new community for which they could devote their lives. There was a uh, Roman officer named Pliny the Younger uh, who noted in a letter to the emperor that in order to learn about the faith, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. If you notice there, his derogatory language towards the women versus what they were offered within the context of the church. That in the church, uh, 
everyone was on equal, was meant to be on equal playing field based on the lives and teachings of Jesus. Even Jesus' teaching concerning taking care of the orphan and the widow in Rome. Widows were expected to be fined uh, if they didn't remarry in two years. And yet here Jesus comes in and talks about taking care of the orphans and the widows in James chapter 1. Talks about true religion that is undefiled before the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. That for Jesus, the widows had something to offer to society and actually ought to be taken care of, not pay society. Jesus inspired uh, a woman named Julian of Norwich in 1393 to write the first book in English ever written by a woman. The 16 Revelations of Divine Love, which is so profound that it is studied to this day. Furthermore, the longest conversation recorded in Scripture between Jesus and one other person is between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well. There's a lot to be unpacked within that story, but it was quite a big deal. And certainly, once again, to quote John Ortberg here, Jesus' life and teaching were sometimes more disregarded inside the church than outs. And few people show less compassion than those who claim Christians have a corner on compassion. So certainly these things have not always been exemplified, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a point here that these things come from the teachings of Jesus. Education also has been radically shifted by the person of Jesus. In the Greco-Roman world, formal education was reserved for male children, particularly of wealthy families. But then Jesus was a great rabbi, a teacher, who taught all people and instructed his followers to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. And so you know what they did? They began to teach all people, and for centuries, I'm quoting here again, monasteries were the only institutions in Europe for the acquisition, preserving, and transmitting of knowledge. A Jesus follower named Benedict collected so many ancient manuscripts that he became known as the godfather of libraries. So those of y'all book nerds like me, it was a way in which Christians tried to exemplify this idea of loving the Lord your God with all of your mind. In fact, the single greatest preserver of pagan or non-Christian classical documents was actually followers of Jesus because they were aiming to provide a way in which we could learn more about who God is. From monasteries came universities, and the first ones, like one in Paris around the 12th century, Oxford and Cambridge in the 13th, were started by followers of Jesus. Why? So people could love the Lord their God with all their minds. When we come to the idea of universal literacy or a goal for it, that came from, was influenced by Martin Luther, who had this idea of the priesthood of all believers for the goal for people to study scriptures for themselves. The first law uh, to require mass universal education in the U.S. was called the Old Deluder Satan Act because Satan was associated with not being able to know and not being able to read. That was in 1647 in Massachusetts. Uh, some of y'all I know, because I know some of y'all's stories, grew up in church and grew up in churches that did Sunday school. Is that a familiar word for y'all, Sunday school? Is anybody familiar with how that got started? So it was not just, just started as a way to just like have Christians exist in like a holy huddle. It was started in 1780 by a Jesus follower in Great Britain named Robert Rakes, who could not stand the cycle of poverty and ignorance that was destroying little children, a whole generation. They had to work six days a week. So he started a school for free on the day that they were off to teach them things like reading and writing and learning about God. And this became known as Sunday school. 
alphabets, dictionaries, grammars, a number of things, uh, written language in a lot of places came from people who were following Jesus, who were working to translate the Bible. And of course, there have been plenty of examples where people equated colonization with mission work and all this other stuff that was really terrible. But there also has been a lot of wonderful things that has come out of it. Science also owes a lot to that of Christianity, because unlike Plato, Christianity held to a value that said matter is good. Why? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made all these things, and what did he say? It was good. Plato didn't think that matter was the best. He thought it was the spiritual that was more important. Pioneers like Francis Bacon, Galileo, Louis Pascal, Isaac Newton, George Washington Carver, and a whole lot more viewed their work as learning to think God's thoughts. Mechanical clocks, you know how they got started? Monks uh, who needed to know when to pray. The first we learned about the invention of eyeglasses was around the year 1300. And yes, I did wear eyeglasses just to point to these today, but these are, these are real eyeglasses that I actually do use to read when I'm working at my computer. So, but I wore them particularly so I could point to them at this moment. The first we hear of them mentioned was in a sermon in 1300 because monks required them to read over text. So if you wear glasses, thanks to people who love Jesus and wanted people to be able to read. There's a whole lot more I could say uh, concerning humility. Humility now being a virtue is directly attributed to Jesus. That would have been associated with weakness, forgiveness, and love of enemies. There was a German political theorist named Hannah Arendt who was the first woman appointed to a full professorship at Princeton. She claimed that forgiveness and love of enemies is a distinctly Christian contribution to the human race. To give you a practical example, Jesus' teaching inspired a man named Leo Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy inspired a man who was a British lawyer who was known as Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi did not become a Christian, but then a man named the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was inspired by Jesus' teachings and Gandhi's methods to do what he did and change where we're at today. Church and state, the separation of church and state stems from, ironically, followers of Jesus. And I'm quoting again from John Ortberg here, so you can take it up with him if you disagree, but I, I will, you can take it up with me too, I totally agree with this. He said, Jesus' followers have often behaved worse when they have possessed political power than when they were persecuted by it. Ideas like individual rights, limited sphere of government, separation of freedom from worship, of worship from the power of the state, and freedom of conscience would all be part of reflecting on what Jesus meant when he talked about to give what belonged to Caesar to Caesar and to God what belonged to God's. Because in the ancient world, all nations had their own God, and the better your nation, the better your God. And here Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's, when those things would not have been so separate for a lot of people. This stems from those who follow Jesus. And if we're going to wrap it up, as the band kind of comes back up here, even at the end of your life, most of us probably will be buried in a graveyard or cemetery. This was taken from Jesus' followers. Cemetery itself comes from a Greek word meaning sleeping place, expressing the hope of resurrection. Whenever you see a cross symbolizing that, when did this symbol of capital punishment become something that was exemplifying the hope for resurrection? Jesus' resurrection has permanently altered the course of human history. And I don't know about you. I know that was kind of a deep dive in drinking from a fire hose, but it makes me really excited to be part of this movement of those who follow Jesus. And, and once again, I keep thinking about that quote that 
people who have the least compassion seem to be those who think that Christians have a corner on compassion. But my point is, regardless of whether things are directly Christian or not, Jesus' resurrection life is already breaking into society that we benefit today from being able to read from these screens, all of us, because of the person of Jesus. Those of us, including myself in this, that are wearing eyeglasses can benefit from that. Those of us wearing watches can benefit from the life and teachings of Jesus. Those of us who've gone to school, who visited a hospital, who think it's important to take care of the poor, to take care of the sick, those who don't have money. That's all, all that is from Jesus. And praise God that we get to join in with him on his resurrection work today. We all pray with me. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you that you are uh, at work. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we uh, respond in worship to you, that you would um, be pleased, uh, not because of anything, uh, particularly of how we sound, but just because of the posture of our hearts. Lord, I pray that uh, we'll just bring everything to you uh, in this moment. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to New City Church's podcast. We hope today's message blessed you. For more information on who we are, what we do, how you can get involved in some resources for your faith, check out newcitynash.com. But until then, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance towards you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.